Hello, I'm Joshua P. Warren, and this is Joshua P. Warren Daily. You know, this time of year, nothing embodies the lessons of Christmas more than Charles Dickens' classic ghost story, A Christmas Carol, one of my favorites. There is a great movie about how he struggled to crank out that 110-page book in about six weeks, snatching inspiration wherever he could. The movie's called The Man Who Invented Christmas. So I suggest you watch it if you also love that classic tale, and you certainly should. A uh, Dickens biographer describes the book A Christmas Carol as being, quote, written at white heat, end quote, during that six-week period, the final pages being completed in early December of 1843, and that same month, it hit the shelves on December 19th and was sold out by Christmas Eve, and by the end of the following year, 1844, 13 editions had been released. Of course, the main character of A Christmas Carol is the infamous miser Ebenezer Scrooge. He has a cold, greedy heart, but in one night of visits on Christmas Eve by three different strange spirits who show him things about the world he's tried to ignore, he sees the error of his ways and transforms into a warm and grateful person happily filled with the Christmas spirit on Christmas Day. Everyone needs to see this story or read this story every year, and and yet some people still just don't get it and truly take the message to heart. But anyway, did you know that the character of Ebenezer Scrooge was based on a real man? Now, there were a number of well-known old misers in London back in Dickens' day, but The one most scholars think Dickens based Scrooge on was a man named John Elwes. In fact, Dickens even mentioned John Elwes specifically uh, on other occasions and in other work. So here's the story of the real Scrooge. So John Elwes was born in Southwark, England on April 7th of 1714 and he died November 26th of 1789 at the age of 75. His father was a successful brewer, and his father's father was a member of Parliament. His mother was the daughter of a wealthy English baronet, Sir Gervais. Sounds like he has some dough, right? And his mother's mother, Lady Isabella, happened to be a famous miser herself. So there was a little something in the genes, perhaps, there. So as a young man, John Elwes received a good education in the classics at the Westminster School and then traveled some in Europe to study horsemanship uh, in Geneva, Switzerland. He was even introduced to Voltaire, the famous French writer. Now, John Elwes had already inherited his first fortune at the age of four when his father died. His mother was left the equivalent of nearly $10 million in today's money. 
but they say she starved herself to death because she was too cheap to spend it. So when she died, he inherited the vast family estate, not just the money, but the estate which spanned numerous properties. But an even bigger inheritance came when his uncle died, Sir Henry. Sir, uh, no, I'm sorry, Sir Har- Hervey. That's what it was, Sir Hervey. Weird name, H-E-R-V-E-Y. Sir Hervey prided himself on only spending a little more than 110 pounds on himself per year. Now, I know it's hard for us to, to think of what 110 pounds would be back in those days, but it must not be much. So John Elwes and his uncle, they would hang out and they would spend an evening, this was like a party evening for them, buy a cheap candle, railing against other people's extravagances while they they shared, I mean shared, a single glass of wine. (laughs) That sounds like a a fun time for two rich guys, doesn't it? When uh, his uncle died in 1763, the 49-year-old John Elwes inherited about $20 million in today's money. That's in addition to what he already had, but that fortune would continue to grow over the years due to his various businesses. In fact, in uh, 1772, when he was 58, with the help of a friend named Lord Craven, John Elwes became a member of Parliament himself for practically no election expenditure. Very influential seat to have. Elwes sat with other, par- uh, excuse me, he, uh, he sat with either party according to his whim, and he never once rose to address the House of Commons. Fellow members mockingly observed that since he possessed only one suit, they could never accuse him of being a turncoat. Being a member of Parliament did, however, cause Elwes to frequently travel to Westminster. He made the journey on a poor, lean horse, the route chosen being always the one where he could avoid tolls. He was known to put a hard-boiled egg in his pocket, and midway on his journey would sit under some hedge and eat his egg or sleep. And after twelve years of this, he retired, rather than face the prospect of laying out any money to retain his seat. Throughout his adulthood, he was truly one of England's most famous misers, He went to bed when darkness fell, so as to save on candles. He began wearing only ragged clothes, including a beggar's cast-off wig that he found in a hedge, and wore that for at least two weeks. Somebody else's old wig, that sounds nasty, huh? His clothes were so dilapidated that many just mistook him for a common street beggar and would put a penny into his hand as they passed. To avoid paying for a coach, he would walk in the rain and then sit in wet clothes to save the cost of a fire to dry them. His house was full of expensive uh, expensive furniture, but also molding food, rotting molding food. He would eat putrefied game before allowing new food to be bought. On one occasion, it was said that he ate a moorhen. Okay, now that is a, that's a bird that floats on the water like a duck, 
he ate a moorhen that a rat had pulled from a river. Rather than spend the money for repairs, he allowed his spacious country mansion to become practically uninhabitable. A near relative once stayed at his home in the country, but the bedroom was in such poor state that the relative was awakened in the night by rain, rain pouring on him from the roof. The relative was forced to move his bed several times until he found a place where he could remain dry. On remarking the circumstances to Elwes in the morning, Elwes said, I, I don't mind it myself. That's a nice corner in the rain. His biographer, Edward Topham, who knew him well, recounts, uh, he even, quote, complained bitterly of the birds robbing him of so much hay with which to build their nests, end quote. Even Elwes's health was limited by expense, yeah, you think, eating putrefied meat. In common with many misers, he distrusted physicians, preferring to treat himself in order to save paying for one. He once badly cut both legs while walking home in the dark, but would only allow the apothecary to treat one, placing a bet with the doctor, wagering the doctor's fee that the untreated limb would heal first. Well, guess what? Elvis won, and the doctor had to forfeit his fee. Elvis also bore a wound from a hunting accident. Uh, legend has it that one day he was out shooting with a gentleman who was a particularly bad shot. This same man accidentally fired through a hedge, lodging several shot in the miser's cheek. With great embarrassment and concern, the gentleman approached Elwes to apologize, but Elwes, anticipating the apology, held out his hand and said, My dear sir, I congratulate you on improving. I thought you would hit something in time. Sounds like he went hunting with Dick Cheney, doesn't it? When his parliamentary career was over, Elwes devoted his full energies to being a miser, as he moved about among his many properties. At his neglected estates, he continued to forbid repairs, joined his tenants in post-harvest gleaning, and sat with his servants in the kitchen to save the cost of a fire elsewhere. Even on the coldest day of winter, he was known to sit fireless at his meals, saying that eating was, quote, exercise enough to keep him warm. If a stable boy put out hay for a visitor's horse, Elwes would sneak out and remove it. In his last years, he had no fixed abode and frequently shifted his residence between his unrented London properties in the neighborhood of Marlebone, seeking out the ones which were temporarily unoccupied. So he had all these rental properties, and if one wasn't occupied, He'd seek it out, and that's where he'd spend the night. Says uh, a couple of beds, a couple of chairs, a table, and a, quote, old woman, that's what they'd call a housekeeper, an old woman, were said to be all his furnishings. 
This same housekeeper was known to frequently catch colds because there were never any fires and often no glass in the windows. And you know what England is like. You've heard, even if you haven't been there, that London fog. It's rainy, it's cold, it's misty. Back then there was a lot of pollution. Pretty harsh climate. So, no glass in the windows, no fire. This practice nearly cost Elwes his life when he fell desperately ill in one of these houses and no one could find him. Only by chance was he rescued. He had a nephew named Colonel Timms who wanted to see him. And Timms was asking around, trying to figure out where Elwes was. He went to Elwes's banker and other places and nobody knew. It just turns out there was a boy selling pots on the street who said that he had seen a quote old beggar an old beggar go into a stable over at one of Elwes's uninhabited houses well you know who that was the old beggar don't you yes it was Elwes so Tim's knocked at the door but when no one answered he sent for a blacksmith and they had the lock forced open according to an author named Edward Walford who documented what happened quote in the lower part of the house, all was shut and silent. But on ascending the stairs, they heard the moans of a person seemingly in distress. They went to the chamber, and there was an old pallet bed. And on it they found Mr. Elwes, apparently in the agonies of death. For some time, he seemed quite insensible, end quote. They say he remained in that condition until some cordials could be administered by a neighboring apothecary. So cordials, you know, who knows? We're talking about some type of medicine, probably with some alcohol in it. After Elwes had sufficiently recovered, he stated that he believed he'd been ill for two or three days and that there was an old woman in the house, a maid. But for some reason or other, she'd not been near him and that she'd been ill herself so he supposed she must have recovered and gone away. Upon searching the premises, however, Tim's and the apothecary found the old woman stretched lifeless on the floor. She had been lying there dead for two days. Elvis didn't even know it. Toward the end of, uh, toward the end of his life, Elvis grew uh, feverish, restless, hoarding small quantities of money in different places, continually visiting all of the places of deposit to see that they were safe. He was very paranoid. He began suffering from delusions, fearing that he would die in poverty. In the night, he was heard struggling with imaginary robbers, crying, I'll keep my money, I will. Oh, don't, don't rob me. And when someone asked him who was there, he, he would say, oh, I beg your pardon, my name is Elvis. I've been unfortunate enough to be robbed in this house, which uh, of all that I believe is mine, all the money I have in the world, the five guineas and a half and a half a crown. Five guineas and a half and half a crown. See, I, I'm not that familiar with English money. Anyway, this guy's out of his mind. He's talking about having just like a handful of money and somebody's trying to steal it from him. The family doctor was sent for when he was in one of these sort of delirious states. 
and looking at the dying miser, the doctor said, quote, That man, with his original strength of constitution and lifelong habits of temperance, might have lived twenty years longer, but for his continual anxiety about money, end quote. Isn't that interesting that the doctor is claiming that anxiety helped kill him and that's why you know it's it's not a matter sometimes of having a lot of money or wealth or resources it's also the effect that has upon your life and your mind and it's different for everybody some people can handle it better than others for some people it's an outright curse you know some people get murdered because they get this money and all of a sudden they get kidnapped for ransom and or they get to where they can't trust anybody. You just never know how you're going to react when, you, when you're when you in that situation. Everybody wants money all the time, but there there is a level at which that, that can become a big problem. So yes, anxiety was definitely contributing. It says even his barrister, okay, this would be his lawyer, who drew up his will, was forced to undertake his writings in the firelight by the dying man's bedside in order to save the cost of a candle. He really loved those candles, let me tell you. The famed miser was also known to sleep in the same worn garments he wore during the day. He was discovered one morning between the sheets with his tattered shoes on his feet an old torn hat on his head and a stick in his hand, and it was in this condition that he died on the 26th of November of 1789. His burial took place in an area called Stoke by Clare, and after having lived on only 50 pounds a year, well, he beat his uncle. After having lived on only 50 pounds a year, Elwes left 500,000 pounds, that's approximately $100 million in today's money. He left approximately $100 million in today's money to his two sons who were born out of wedlock, George and John, whom he loved, by the way, but he would not educate them, believing that, quote, putting things into people's heads is the sure way to take money out of their pockets, end quote. Well, what a philosophy. And he left the rest of his money, however much that was, to his nephew. The following summary of his character by his friend and biographer, Mr. Topham, said, quote, his public character lives after him pure and without stain. In private life, he was chiefly an enemy to himself. To others... He lent much. To himself, he denied everything. But in the pursuit of his property, or in the recovery of it, I have it not in my remembrance one unkind thing that was ever done by him. End quote. They say that there were times where he would lend people, especially gentlemen, large sums of money, and he wouldn't get that repaid 
And you'd think, well, he should flip out about that. But no, he was taught that you never ask a gentleman for money. That's rude. So it's kind of funny, isn't it? They say he would haggle over, you know, a nickel or whatever when he was going to the stockade or whatever where they had all the his cows and stuff. But he, if, if you were a gentleman, he'd give you quite a loan and maybe never even ask for it again. John Elwes. You know, I'll tell you this as a side note here, just in case you've been wondering. The famous actor Carrie Elwes, who played the lead in The Princess Bride, is indeed a descendant of John Elwes. Interesting. I wonder um <laughs> I wonder how much they that Carrie Elwes really could talk about that connection. But anyway, even though John Elwes was apparently not as mean as Scrooge, he obviously was a great framework for a character who is obsessed with the superficial material world. And in one way or another, he suffered in the end, just as Scrooge would have if not for the intervention of the three spirits on Christmas Eve. And I, look, I understand you hear a, a story about a guy like that who lived this way, who basically had a hundred million dollars, would sit in the dark, would, you know, dress like a beggar, freeze to death, eat putrefied meat. It's easy to look at somebody like him and, you know, roll our eyes and look down on him. But just remember what Jacob Marley said. Now he, in the story A Christmas Carol, was the tortured ghost of Scrooge's greedy old business partner dragging the heavy chains and money boxes. And he said, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it, link by link and yard by yard of my own free will and of my own free will I wore it and then he said would you know would you know the ghost asked Scrooge the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself it was as full and heavy and long as this seven Christmas Eves ago. You have labored on it since. It is a ponderous chain. So now, I must ask each of you, my dear podcast listeners, to pause for a moment and imagine your own invisible chain that you have fashioned link by link throughout your life we all have one but it may never be too late to cut that chain down a lot to be a better kinder more understanding and humble person to be grateful for all the good things in your life and never take them for granted because if you're not careful and you give in to those negative impulses 
those judgmental forces and opinions, that pessimism all around you, well, that chain may drag you further and further down as it gets heavier and heavier, further down all the way to hell. So the good news is you can cut that chain. You can raise your vibration, smile, tell everyone you love them, mean it. Do something good for someone. And the spirits of Christmas Eve will only bring you wonderful rewards to be revealed in the coming year. I believe that. I believe that with great confidence. So, I hope you enjoyed knowing the story, hearing the story of the real Scrooge, the guy who inspired Charles Dickens. So, that's it for this edition of the podcast. It's called Joshua P. Warren Daily. Be sure to sign up for my free e-newsletter at joshuapwarren.com for breaking news on my new experiments. You don't want to miss those. It's, it takes you two seconds, and if you sign up for the free e-newsletter, you'll automatically receive an email with a free good luck charm. While you're there at joshuapwarren.com, click the link to this podcast. It's always short, always free, commercial-free, independent, uncensored. You can subscribe to the podcast through various means or just follow me on Twitter at Joshua P. Warren, at Joshua P. Warren, and I usually tweet when a new one is available. So, thank you for listening. Thank you for your interest and support. Thank you for staying curious. Have a Merry Christmas, and I will talk to you again soon.